Please uh, take your scriptures and open with me to Hebrews, book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at chapter 10 and the first 18 verses of that chapter. There was an English church in a little village and it had a stone arch on the top of the entrance and on that stone arch it was written, We Preach Christ Crucified. For decades, godly men would stand in that pulpit and preach there and present a Savior who was crucified for the sins of the people and who rose again from the dead as the only means of salvation. But as that generation passed away, the next generation of men began to consider Christ's bloody sacrifice kind of antiquated and and slightly repulsive. They began to preach salvation by following Christ's example rather than trusting in his blood. They did not see the necessity of his blood. After a few years, as you walked through the entrance of that church, the ivy had grown over that fourth word, crucified, and it simply read, we preach Christ. Then over the next few decades, the church decided that the message And the messages that were preached there did not have to be confined to to simply Christ or the Bible. That was too confining. So the preachers began to give discourses on social issues, on politics, on philosophy, on current events that sparked their interest. And at the same time, the ivy continued to grow and eventually covered the third word. So that as you entered that church, over the arch, all you read was, we preach. Maybe there's some giggles there, but sadly, that's what happens to a lot of churches. Perhaps you've witnessed it. Perhaps you've You've been in a church and been one of the ones that have tried to stem that tide. The church has slowly regressed from preaching the necessity of Christ's bloody crucifixion as an atonement for sin. And they move on to limpid social exhortations or empty philosophical words or powerless political proclamations. In our text today, the author wants to make sure that that is not the trajectory of the people he is writing to. So after he spends chapter 9 talking about the necessity of Christ's blood, he turns in chapter 10 to to the absolute necessity of Christ's crucifixion. Look with me at... Verse 1 of chapter 10. God's word says, For since the law has but a shadow 
of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until the enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit who bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawlessness, lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Oh, Father God, I just pray that you will help me to preach this, your word, well. Help me to make it clear. And help your son to be seen well and what he has done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This section is divided easily into three parts. Verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 10, and then verses 11 through 18. And we'll follow that outline as we follow the outline, preach Christ crucified. So first of all, preach Paul, in his opening letter to the Corinthian church, writes this in chapter 2. When I, Paul, came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. For I, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When people ask me what is the key to taking a church that is on the downward side of the bell curve 
and bring it back to the other side of the bell curve, the growth, growth side of the bell curve, if you will, I just tell them one simple thing, and it usually frustrates them. I tell them to preach Christ crucified. Preach the gospel every week. Preach the gospel in season and out season. Preach the gospel. Find Christ in every text. The weekly preaching of the gospel. As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. Preaching is the center of all life for the church. It is the heart, the beating heart of the church. What is happening right now is the beating heart of this church. But as our opening illustration shows, it matters what is preached, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? It matters what is said from this very little from this two-by-two two spot. It's critical what is said from here. It matters what you are depending on for your strength, for your comfort, for your guidance. If I'm standing up here and I'm telling you to put your weight behind a political party, I believe that is sinful. Politics is not where hope is found. Next president is not where hope is found. Or is it not found in a philosophy expounded from this two-by-two area? Or is it self-help? You see, it matters what you're looking for for your hope. And in these first four verses, the author is saying it is in Jesus Christ crucified. It matters what you preach. It's helpful to remind ourselves the context of the whole letter here. These converted Jews that the author is writing to are under severe persecution and they are tempted. This church or this group of of people that he's writing to are tempted to pull back from proclaiming Christ crucified and go back to the Mosaic way of doing things, to go back to the Old Covenant, going back to the sacrifices. They're saying, it's so intense, we're, we have so much, we're losing so much, we'll just put Christ to the side and go back to the way we used to do things. And the author has been telling them for nine chapters unequivocally and in frank terms, there's no hope in going back. There's no hope in the sacrifices. That trajectory leads to no relationship with God. That's what we see in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true realities, it is never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. You cannot have an intimate relationship with God without Jesus Christ. If you are not made perfect through Jesus Christ and his atoning blood, access is denied for you. That's what the tabernacle showed in the last chapter, right? The tabernacle was actually built to show there was little access, right? Very limited access. Also, that trajectory does nothing for their consciences. If you go back to the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, the author is saying, it doesn't cleanse your conscience. That's what verse 2 is telling us. 
Otherwise, they, the animal sacrifices, would not have ceased to have been offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. The author is simply restating what he said just a few moments ago in chapter 9. Animal sacrifices cannot ease a person's conscience. The guilty conscience of worshipers pointed to the ineffectiveness of those sacrifices. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary, under the old covenant, the person always had a pervasive sense of dis-ease. One's inner moral discernment always registered a floating guilt, he calls it. Listen to what the hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote. In one of his hymns, he writes, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars stain could give the guilty conscience rest or wash away one stain. Isaac Watts read Hebrews. The Jews would always leave the tabernacle with a guilty conscience. They were still bothered by their sin. Lastly, he repeats what he's been saying all along in verse 4, that the Mosaic animal sacrifices were never intended to take away sin. Look at verse 4. He says it is in frank terms as he can, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. He says it again in verse 11. That for every day the priest stands in the service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. The animal sacrifices were never intended to take away sin. This is the great misconception that the author of the Hebrews is trying to correct in the minds of his readers. The animal sacrifices never took away your sin. So you can't go back there and expect them to now. According to Scripture, the Mosaic Law had had several purposes. We see them sprinkled throughout this letter, throughout Romans. But here, in this section that we're looking at, two are stated here. Verse 3 tells us that the sacrifices were a reminder of their sin. A reminder. The author has in mind here the Day of Atonement, the day when the high priest would go in and all of Israel would gather at the temple and he would place his hands on two goats, if you remember Leviticus 16. And on the one goat he would transfer symbolically the sins of the people and that goat would be taken outside the city and left to wander in the wilderness and they called that goat the scapegoat. And then he would take the second goat and he would kill it and drain its blood and he would take that goat's blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the ark, on the mercy seat as an atonement for the sins of the people. And that action reminded Israel how heinous their sin was. It reminded Israel that they needed atonement for their sin. They needed forgiveness for their sin. It reminded them that the wrath of God was not satisfied, but just put off for a while. That's the point that Paul makes in Romans 3.25 when he comes to the conclusion and says, 
God, in his forbearance, left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He's reminding the people he's writing to. Those sins were never a satisfaction of God's wrath. Through animal sacrifice, there was a temporary stay of execution, if you will. There's a legend in the 4th century BC of a man called Damocles. And Damocles was complaining one day before his king, Dionysus, that he had the easy life. He had it all. As king, he had power and authority. He was surrounded with magnificence. He had a life of ease. Anything he wanted was at his fingertips. And Dionysus, being a wise king, offered to switch places with Damocles for one day. So that's what they did. The next day, Damocles accepted the king's proposal and he eagerly sat down on the king's throne. He looked out and saw that he was indeed surrounded by luxury. And as he looked around, he looked up and he saw hanging over the throne a huge razor-sharp sword that was hung from the ceiling by a single horsehair. It was placed there to give the king a sense of what it's like to be king, a proper sense. Though having much, there was always danger, always fear, always a possibility of death. After a few hours, Damocles begged the king to switch places with him because he could not take that impending sense of doom sitting under that sword. He couldn't take it. I tell you that because that, that's kind of how it was like to live in the Mosaic Covenant. The sword of Damocles was always hanging over their heads. Their consciences were always bothering them. It was a sense of dread, a continual nagging of guilt. That's how it is today when a person stands here and preaches law and not gospel. That's what you will leave with. If you've ever sat under preaching of, of law or of legalism, you know what I'm talking about. You know when law has been preached and not gospel, when you leave challenged and convicted, which is a good thing, but there's no relief. You know you've sat under law and not heard the gospel when you leave with a long list of to-dos and never hear it is done. You know when law has been preached and not the gospel when you leave saying to yourself over and over again, I need to do better. I need to do better. When you leave with a sense of guilt, when you leave with a sense that there's this sword of Damocles hanging over your head, you know that you've heard law and not gospel. Verse 1 tells us that the law was intended to leave them with this sense of guilt to be a foreshadow of some better to come, to, to lead them to a longing, to have a longing 
for the fulfillment of those things in Jesus Christ, in the coming Messiah, to create a longing for something that was more than just a reminder of sin, to create in them a longing for this relief from this guilt. If you've ever rented a house or rented an apartment and, and you get to getting close to the, to the beginning of the month and you, you can't make your payment, and imagine if, if, if the landlord came and said, You're, you don't have to pay this month, just give me an IOU. And he kept doing that month after month after month after month. You become, you, you have this sense of dread that this debt is mounting. And he keeps giving me the IOU, but I'm dreading that first of the month. That's what it was like to live under the Mosaic Law. To create a longing for something better than this animal sacrifice. To create a longing for the Messiah. Come, Lord Jesus. To create a longing for Christ. That brings us to our second point. In verses 5 through 10, the author is driving home the point that animal sacrifices were totally insufficient to cope with their sin. If you look at this from the quote from Psalm 40, you see it wedged right in between. This is a very common thing in, in biblical literature. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Wedged right in between there is the first reason why animal sacrifices were insufficient. It was not like for like. It was not like for like. Even though Yahweh set up the whole sacrificial system, it was never intended to satisfy him. John MacArthur writes, God could never have been satisfied with animal offerings and he became less satisfied with them as they became a sham and a mockery. When Christ was ready to be incarnated, standing on the edge of heaven, as it were, he writes, talking to his father, he acknowledged that his own body would be the sacrifice that would please him. The sacrifice had to be like for like, human for human, That's why God took on flesh. That's why we just declared it in the Apostles' Creed. That's why it's part of the Apostles' Creed. Born of the Virgin Mary. It's critical. It's a critical doctrine. It's why God took on flesh. So that a rescue could be accomplished not by a bull or a goat or a pigeon but by another human, fully human, Jesus Christ. That's how forgiveness is to be granted. That's how God is to be satisfied, like for like. I can't get many people to play Monopoly with me anymore. I love Monopoly. I always kind of suggest it with my kids, and they always go, no way. I love Monopoly. And in Monopoly, you can do these trades. You know what I'm talking about? You have certain properties and you want to trade. And say, say, if, if you had 
boardwalk. And I had Park Place, and I had other properties. And I said to you, and my son is great at this, because he always tells me no. If I give you Baltic and Mediterranean, (laughs) if I give you a monopoly, will you give me Boardwalk? I mean, we laugh, right? Because we know that there's no way. The value is so unequal that it's laughable, right? That's kind of the way it was with animal sacrifices. Could you really think that a goat could forgive your sin? It's like offering God Baltic and Mediterranean, saying we're even, right? That's why Christ came in the flesh. That's why the body had to be prepared for him. The sacrifice had to be like for like. Look at verse 7. It says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And this is the second reason he had to come in the flesh. So that he could obey God perfectly. So that he, a man, with, with the same temptations that you and I have, could obey God perfectly. That was the second insufficiency of an animal sacrifice. They could not earn any righteousness with God. Jesus, through his taking on flesh, was able to obey God perfectly. In John six thirty-eight, in that wonderful discourse on the bread of life, he says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That's, what, that's my first and primary mission, to obey God. To love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and want to obey him. That was the first part of Jesus' incarnational mission. To fulfill all righteousness, we read over and over in scriptures, right? To obey the will of the Heavenly Father. To be perfect. To earn heaven. To earn heaven. Do you realize that it is by works? The Bible's clear. You get into heaven by works. Just going to let you sit there for a second. In a sense, Christianity is like all other religions. You make it there by earning it. But the great difference between Christianity and all other religions on the face of the earth is that a Christian does not trust in his own works, but in the works of Christ. That's the only difference. A true Christian never trusts his own faithfulness, but in Christ's faithfulness, all the way to the cross. A true Christian never looks to his own obedience for security, but looks to the obedience of Jesus Christ. The work of obeying God's will perfectly was accomplished by Christ in his humanity, something an animal simply cannot do. 
That was the first part of Jesus' incarnational mission. But his second was to die in our place. And that brings us to our last point this morning. Preach. Preach what? Preach Christ. What about Christ? Preach him crucified. The greatness of what Jesus did is really encapsulated in verses 11 and 12. Look at that with me. The author of the Hebrews is... I mean, this whole section, actually, these these 18 verses is building up to the crescendo of, of chapter 10, verses 19 and following. But here he says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool to his feet. For by a single offering, he has, made, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is a powerful section of scripture, brothers and sisters. The repeated sacrifice over and over and over versus the one. Their ineffective, the ineffectiveness of taking away the sins versus Christ's complete perfection and forgiveness. And if you, sitting here, believe that Jesus lived the life that you could not, in other words, if you recognize how far short you fall from the glory of God, to put it in biblical terms, If you believe that he died the death that you deserve, in other words, you're culpable before God for your life and your failure. And you believe that he is seated at the right hand of God right now. In other words, that he bodily rose from the grave and ascended and is in heaven. That trust that faith, that dependence has an invisible effect on you. When you place your faith and trust, there's an, something invisible that happens. Only seen by the eyes of God. You are declared righteous. You are perfected. I mean, uh, Look at verse 14. It says it right there. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those, that's us, who are being sanctified. Through faith in Jesus Christ, an invisible transaction happens. Your sin is placed in Christ, on Christ, and is paid for through his crucifixion. And his righteous life, his perfect life, his record is placed in your account. You and I, we don't see this happening. But that's what happens in the economy of God. You are perfected. The theological word for that is justified. You're justified. God treats you as if you had Never sinned, just as if you had never sinned. You've probably heard that. That's what, that's what it means to be justified. God looks at you and he says, I'm not going to treat Blake 
like he's acting. I'm going to treat him as Jesus acted. And that's an amazing thing. It's not that you're perfected. That's what verse 14 goes on to say. You're positionally perfect, but you're practically being sanctified. Right? I mean, if you ever struggle with that, just underline this verse, verse 14. It's right there in one verse. You're positionally perfect. He treats you as if you're perfect. But you know what? We stumble all the way to the heaven's gate. Perfection has been a theme throughout these verses. Verse 1 tells us that animal sacrifices cannot make perfect. Verse 10 tells us through Christ's offering of his body we've been made holy. Verse 14 tells us that Christ's single offering has made us perfect for all time. Did you know that statistically speaking, Stanford University is the hardest university to get into? They receive about 42,000 applications and they accept about 2,000 students. That's less than 5%. On their website, they give students realistic expectations. The average ACT score is 15. A perfect score is 16. The SATs, the average SAT score of a person coming, going to Stanford, 1520. Perfect score, 16. GPA, 4.18. If you want to get into Stanford, you'd better be pretty close to perfect. If you want to get into heaven, you better be perfect. You realize that? The only way to have that perfect record is to believe in Jesus Christ. The promise of the gospel is that if you trust in Jesus' work and not your own, you're declared perfect. In other words, he, he sat down on that dreaded Saturday and took the SAT and got a 1600. And when he got the grade, he put your name at the top. He took the ACTs and he got a 16. And when he handed it in, he wrote your name at the top. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you on the cross, you are able to draw near to God. Not just now. That's, that's a wonderful thing. You're able to draw near to God now. You're able to have an intimate relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. A real, living relationship. That, and that would be enough, right? Just give me that. But it gets better. You're given access to him forever in heaven. Forever. If you place your faith in the crucified Christ, I want you to look down at verse 19 of chapter 10 and I want you to realize what is being promised there. Listen to what scripture is telling you. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, 
let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Brothers and sisters, if you've given your life to Christ, you will not be denied access to God. You'll be with him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your son. How wonderful it is to hear about him and what he has done for us over and over and over again. Thank you for sacrificing yourself on our behalf. And as somebody prayed, it's just astonishing that you saved me. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.